This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hamelech, and he was killed unfortunately by the Nazis. So he talks about how to quiet one's mind because we know the mind is never still. The mind just keeps on going. But it's always thinking. As we said, that's dot. But it just, just keeps on going. Person wakes from the slumber and they wake up and they're, they're thinking and they're thinking and thinking in the bed. They can't sleep. Person's thinking just nonstop. The mind just keeps on going. Huh? Before TV. Before TV. Well, during TV as well, people, people uh, you think they're focusing? Some people just dream. They do dream on. So the mind is thinking by itself. So even in, you're listening to a class, you go to college, you see people sitting in front of the professor, the professor's talking, and what are they doing? They're all, all over, the mind's all over the place. Sitting in a class, anyway, the mind's all over the place. So how does a person quiet the thoughts of the mind? That's really the key. How do you quiet the thoughts of the mind in order to be able to concentrate on something? So he says, a person should focus on what they're thinking. How do you focus? The, how do you, you know, the mind is amazing because the less you focus on it, the more it runs right. The mind just keeps on thinking and thinking. A person should ask himself, what am I thinking? Hey, the mind just stops. Try it. What am I thinking? All of a sudden, the mind says, oh, you're asking questions. Stop. Amazing. The mind slowly empties. The thoughts stop their usual torrent. When that happens, the person should say a verse, say a pasuk. Say, Elemet, Moshe, Amet, Amet. God is true, Moshe is true, the Torah is true. Say something which is tangible, which is holy. And this way, a person will bind their thoughts to something holy. So by, that's what we try and do before the Shemun Asra. A person to try and empty their thoughts. How do you empty your thoughts? Probably you can't talk. So Mincha time, you can talk at least. But just think, what am I thinking about? Imagine, just before the Shemun Asra, a person should say, Hashem Tzvaytitach, what am I thinking about? And before that, before Hashem Tzvaytitach, what am I thinking about? What do you mind, what do you mind thinking about? So you just, a person just said Ashrei. What do you think they're thinking about? They should be thinking about Ashrei, right? Not so true. A person's thinking about all sorts of things in their head. The head is non-stop, just going on and on. So how do you attract, how do you stop that flow of thoughts? And the answer is by saying to you oneself, softly, what am I thinking about? What are you thinking about? What does the mind think about? So straight away, the mind stops. You're talking, asking about me. mind just stops. Amazing. It's amazing. Afterwards, so first is, ask the mind, what are you thinking about? Second is, fill the mind with something holy. Say a verse, say a pasuk, say something holy in, in one's head. And then a person can ask God for whatever he wants. That's what we do, really. That's really what we do. You really start with ashray, which is really introduction. Hopefully emptying the mind of previous thoughts. And then we say, Hashem, Hashem, you put my head in, 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 in your words into my mouth. Hashem, open my mouth. So we're asking God for whatever we need. So we draw attention to God, and then we ask God for whatever we need. So a person can then ask, what, so let's, there's three stages. The first stage is stopping the mind from thinking about other things. How do you stop the mind from thinking about other things? Ask the mind, what are you thinking about? Number two is fill the mind with holy thoughts, saying a verse. Say a verse, say some kind of pasuk, fill the mind with holiness. And then a person can ask for whatever they want. Because the mind is now focused on God, you can ask for whatever you want. That's really the format of the tefillah. That's really the format of the tefillah. That's it. That's the format of the tefillah. Three things. Stop the mind from thinking extraneous thoughts. Two is fill the mind with holiness. And then you can start asking God for what you want. So a person can say, for example, I believe God is the only reality in the world. Enor Milvado, there's nothing else but him. You can bump a sticker. Enor Milvado, there's nothing except from God. Nothing else exists except for God. Or you say, everything in the world is God's light. 
A person can say, I want to be next to Hashem. I want to feel close to Hashem. So this technique is a very quiet technique. It's not a forceful technique. You don't have to scream and shout. You just talk to yourself nicely, pleasantly. Why? So a very interesting idea is when you talk to yourself forcefully, you're arousing your own ego. Like, you know, when you tell children to do something, they always do the opposite. So the same thing applies to our ego. The person says to the ego, you have to do this. And the ego says, no, I won't. <laughs> Internally. Imagine. So a person's talking softly to himself. What are you thinking about? I want to get closer to God. It has a big impact on the ego as well. So he says, using this method, a person will be able to correct all their character faults. Amazing. For example, someone with laziness just should not speak to getting away from laziness, but speak about the positive. So a person shouldn't tell themselves, don't be lazy. A person should pray to God, you know, please, God, make me zrizut. Give me zrizut. Give me the trait of being quick. You know, this is a very famous trait of Abraham Avinu. This week's parasha, it's amazing. Why? Look how many times Abraham Avinu says the word Mahari. Quickly, 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 do this quickly, quickly, quickly. He tells his wife, I don't know, some other wife would have smacked him. He tells his wife, quickly make the, make the bread. He runs to the cattle, and then he tells his son, quickly run and get this. And that. He's running around. Why? That's the Mida person wants. Mida is the Rizut. It's called Rizut, running around. You know, the test of Abraham, right? Abraham gets up early in the morning. Imagine how you get up early in the morning to shech the sun. Wild. Why is the middle of the resort serving God with him. So what does Abraham Avinu tell himself? He doesn't tell himself, don't be lazy. He tells himself, be quick to do a mitzvah, be quick to do a mitzvah. We say the positive to oneself, again, by not using negative, and this works with children as well. You tell a child, don't do, they're more likely to do it. You tell them, do, it's more positive. I like the way you did it. Right? Or you can do it. You can do it like that. So it's interesting, like speaking to a small child. Speaking to oneself is like speaking. He says, speak to oneself, speak to your own ego like you speak to your small child. It's amazing. Telling it not to cry will only make you cry more. You ever tell a child, don't cry? It's the worst thing you can tell a kid, don't cry. They cry more. What we do is distract their attention. I like the way you smiled, I like the way you're quiet. Yeah? So now, by quieting the mind, it imitates sleep. When you imitate sleep, then you can. We talked about dreams last time. When you imitate sleep, then you can contact your inner mind when you're imitating sleep. So it doesn't mean you're sleeping, it means you're awake. But you're awake in a very quiet mode, a very quiet, peaceful mode. And that's why it's good to meditate in quiet places, right? So then you can contact your inner mind. The mind is pure, straightforward, childlike, and unsophisticated. Speak to it in uncomplicated sentences, as you would to a child, positively, clearly, and simply. Speak to the mind positively clearly and simply. So a similar effect is achieved through tefillah. Besides its cosmic effect, praying to God and asking God for things, has tremendous vibrations in the worlds above. By saying the words of prayer softly and clearly with focus, causes spiritual moral changes within oneself. A person saying, you know, refine Hashem, heal me Hashem, causes changes in oneself, in the body. A person says, you know, give me a teshuvah Hashem, causing changes in oneself. All these things causing change in oneself. So it's interesting because the Shulchan says you have to hear what you say when you pray. The Rizal says you shouldn't even hear what you say. And your lips must move. Everyone agrees your lips must move. The question is, do you have to hear what you say? Shulchan says most people follow Shulchan You have to hear what you say. The Kabbalists say, no. You, should, you yourself shouldn't even hear what you're saying. It's purely the inner mind talking. 
It's purely. I mean, if you look at the Kabbalah, it's is mainly all concentrations. It's all meditation. Most of the Siddur is meditation. It's so hard to pray. It takes over an hour to say, and I mean, at least an hour. Why? Because it's full of different meditations. So that's really what I say. The tefillah is very quiet. And it's a meditation which is part of the tefillah. The main part of the tefillah is a meditation. So the question is now, what's between hypnosis and meditation? Right? Hypnosis is another means to penetrate the inner mind. But there's a big difference. The meditation is self-directed and therefore it's a person has control. You're sitting in the control seat. You're sitting in the seat. Whereas a medit- uh, your hypnosis, you're sitting in the seat of the hypnotist. He's in, he's in control. So which direction you're going, if you're meditating, it's, you're, you're in control. If you're sitting by, the medit- uh, by a hypnotist, he's in control. That's a terrible thing. He's, he's in power. So the personal power of meditation, exercising one's own free will to focus upon one's chooses, is morally and psychologically empowering. Producing altogether different psychological effects to those hypnosis. Additionally, by subjugating oneself to someone else's suggestions, one runs the danger of actively removing God from one's mind. Again, that's a danger. So we know that one of the six common constants for is always think about God. Now, how do you do that? I'm driving a car. How do you think about God? Well, the way I drive is very easy. <laughs> how do you think about God when you're driving? And the answer is it's not something which you're constantly aware in the front of your mind, it's in the back of your mind. Because it's your subconscious always think, I know there's a God, I know there's a God, I know there's a God. I know there's no other God, I know there's one God. I know I, f- I love God, I fear God. All this in the back of a person's mind. Hopefully that's also in the back of one person's mind. So it's not in the front of one's mind, it's in the back of mind. But hypnosis can remove it from our mind. And that's the danger. So that's kind of idolatry. Removing God completely from the brain is a kind of idolatry. So even a sinner knows at the back of his mind, Hashem is watching you. I know Hashem is watching. And that's a very high level, by the way, of sitting. If you're sitting and know God's watching, as long as you don't do it deliberately in order to anger God, it's an awareness, it removes a little bit of the enjoyment of the sin. I'm rebelling against God, I know I'm, I know God is watching, I know it's bad, I know it's wrong. Guilt is very, very powerful. So it removes a bit of the, uh, even a person saying, sighing, the Baal Shem says. He remembers what he did. He sighs. It's a tremendous power of teshuva already in that sigh. So it's interesting. So hypnosis is very dangerous because you are not in the control seat. So the guy is in the control seat. Where he's going to take you, who knows where he's going to take you. But he's not leading you towards God, usually. Usually taking you away from God. So in contrast to hypnosis, hypnosis constricts nature. Meditation increases attention span. Precipitating entry into expand is super-rational consciousness. A person who is med- meditating can experience the soul. Something a person in hypnosis cannot experience. So that's the difference between meditation and hypnosis. Moreover, meditative contemplation uses both the left and right brains. The rational part of the intellect in conjunction with the imagination. Whereas hypnosis just use, uses the subconscious, which is more like imagery and memories. Okay, so, uh, so whereas uh, meditation enters both uses both the imagination and the rational brain, and that leads to the intellect, which is the soul, and the muhin de galut, which is the, in, the bigger brain, the bigger brain, which we're going to talk about. So let's just go to the Rambam over here, in Murdochim. The Rambam talks about prophecy. It's very, very fascinating, the Rambam. I mean, you think, the Rambam, what does the Rambam know about meditation? The Rambam knows everything about meditation. Because one of the pr- 30 principles of faith is we believe that God gives prophecy to man. It's one of the things we say in Yigdal, right? 
that God gives the power of prophecy to man. Otherwise, no one would be able to see God. How do we see God at Sinai? How do we talk to God? How did God talk to us? And the answer is prophecy. So we, we believe. It's one of the three questions. Jews have to believe in prophecy. Because if Jews do not believe in prophecy, there's no way God can talk to us. Because the medium through which God talks to us is prophecy. It's amazing. Constantly. It's amazing. We can talk to God all we want. That's, that's prayer. But prophecy is God speaks to us. So we believe that God does speak to man. God can speak to man. God does speak to man. The vehicle of God speaking to man is through Nevoah. And how does a person become a Navi? And the answer is only through meditation. There's another way. Okay, so I just want to quote you the Rambam over here. So it is possible for people to still receive prophecy? Not today. He said today it's only through madmen and children. However, you get close to it. Ruach HaKodesh. But you know eventually, I'm going to send you Eliyahu Navi. Lift their boy Before the great day comes, what's Eliyahu Navi's purpose? And the answer is going to teach us how to meditate, how to be prophets again. So it's amazing. There's going to be schools of prophets. So you said madmen and children? Yes. Madmen and children have prophecy. And no one's going to believe them anyway. The idea is no one's going to believe them. That's the idea. Why did Hashem leave the prophecy for them? And the answer is no one's going to believe them. So, this is Rambam. Look at this. Let's look at this Rambam. It's amazing Rambam. This is Morin of Chim, chapter 37. The second section of Rambam. Morin of Chim, chapter 37. Prophecy is, in truth and reality, an emanation sent forth by a divine being. Hashem sends a message to a person. How? Through the medium of the active intellect. It's through the person's brain, through the intellect. In the first instance, to man's rational faculty, and then to the imaginative faculty. In other words, which part of the brain is involved in, in prophecy? Both. Both sides of the brain. The intellect and the imagination. Both sides of the brain are involved in prophecy. Amazing. It is the highest degree and greatest perfection man can attain. That's the highest level a human being can attain? A prophet. The highest level you can ever attain as a human being is a prophet. Prophecy is a faculty that cannot in any way be found in a person or acquired by a person through a culture of mental and moral faculties. For even if these latter were as good and perfect as possible, they would still be of no avail. Unless they were combined with the highest natural excellence of the imaginative faculty. Even though you're a good person, you're a tzaddik, and this and that doesn't mean you're a prophet. The person going to develop their brain, develop their imagination to be a prophet. Amazing. You know that the full development of any faculty of the body, such as the imagination, depends on the condition of the organ by which the, which the faculty acts. So in other words, you want to be a basketball player, make sure your body is strong. You want to have a good prophecy, what do you do? You've got to make sure your brain is strong. Which part of the brain? Both the rational and the imaginative part of the brain. Any defect in this respect cannot in any way be supplied or remedied by training. For when any organ is defective in its temperament, proper training can in best restore a healthy condition to some extent, but cannot make an organ perfect. So the organ must be perfect, which is the brain's got to be perfect. The imagination's got to be perfect. How, how do you make your imagination perfect? Part of the functions of the imaginative faculty is to retain impressions by the senses, to combine them, and chiefly to form images. So person, some people are very, some kids are very, have tremendous imaginations. That's why kids have the best prophecy. Like, you tell them something and they dream about it, and they go and they have nightmares. Why, why do they have nightmares? Because the imagination just takes off, boom. 
And that's, that's, but if they could control the imagination and perfect the imagination, they'd be tremendous prophets. Because they get the rational message from God and they can envision it in their mind. How do you envision this message? So it turns into a vision in the mind, the imagination. The principle and highest function is performed when the senses at rest and pause in their action. Exactly what we talked about, right? How you pause your brain. How do you pause your brain? For then it receives to some extent dividing inspiration, the measure as it's predisposed for this influence. This is the nature of those dreams which prove true and also prophecy. The difference being of, of quantity, not of quality. The rabbis say a dream is how much? One sixtieth of prophecy. They don't say it's a lesser quality. They say it's lesser quantity. Ramon says they're both qualitatively equal, but just lesser quantity. It's amazing. I would think the dream is much less quality. It's not less quality, it's less quantity. Just like a TV set. How many lines in a TV? Depends on the TV, right? How many today talk about pixels, right? So you have uh, 1080 times 780, whatever it is, pixels on the, on, the, on the screen of an LCD screen, right? Now, can you imagine if you have less pixels? You can only see a grainy picture. That's a dream. A dream is a grainy picture. The quality is the same, but the quantity of the pixels is different. So the sages say the dream is the sixth part of prophecy. It was. It must be the same thing. You can't compare two different things, right? You can't say the perfection of man is so many times the perfection of a horse. You can't compare the two. They're not comparable. So the fact that we're comparing a dream to prophecy implies that a dream is a kind of prophecy. Yes, as well. Yes, that's okay. You see, it's comparable. It is comparable. You don't compare things which are not comparable. That's what we're saying. You can't compare a horse to a human being. You just there's no way to compare them. The more interesting one is the dream of Gehenom, though. Huh? The 160th of Gehenom. What is? Uh, okay. Something like the hottest fire here is something is 160th. Okay. How are you going to measure that? But again, how do you measure a dream in prophecy? Okay. So the, in Breshit Rabbah, the, the, the Rabbis say, dream is the unripe fruit of prophecy. This is an excellent comparison. For the unripe fruit is really the fruit to some extent. Only it has fallen from the tree before it's fully developed and ripe. In a similar manner, the, uh, the action of the imaginative faculty during sleep is the same at the time when it receives a prophecy. When the first case is not fully developed, okay, so when a person receives a dream, it's not a fully developed prophecy. It's a prophecy, it's like an unripe fruit. Amazing. It's not a fully developed prophecy. So this is what Hashem says. In Baalotcha, right? Hashem's talking to Aaron and Miriam. How come we're also prophets? So uh, Hashem says, if there's a prophet, I, Hashem, make myself known to them in a vision and dream I will speak to him. And not like what I highly speak to Moshe. In other words, the, the, the prophecy is like a vision or a dream. So you see, the dream and the prophecy are similar. Okay? And the original is the mare. Mare is a noun derived from the word ro'e, to see the something. What do you, how do you see something in a dream? And the answer is imagination, right? The imaginative faculty acquires such an efficiency in its action that it sees the thing as it comes, as it came from without, and perceives it as if it's through the medium of all bodily senses. You can even imagine, you can smell it and feel it and touch it in the dream. It's so dangerous, so lifelike. Right? A dream could be so lifelike. That's why kids get, wake up in the middle of nightmares. They see the lion and they feel the lion, they feel the lion's breath on your face. Oh boy. 
early. So human beings, you know, we grow up and we, we sort of know it's a dream. You can sort of tell the difference between a life, life. Sometimes a dream is very, very powerful. It's so lifelike. So dangerous, very dangerous. So these two modes of prophecy, vision and dream, include all its different degrees, all different stages between them. It is a well-known fact, a thing which engages greatly and nervously man's attention while he is awake, and the full possession of his senses forms during his sleep the object of the action of his imaginative faculty. We talked about this uh, in our uh, dreams. Like most dreams follow what you think about during the day. Imagination is then only influenced by the intellect insofar as it predisposed to such influence. Okay? It is like the action of the senses, the existence of which no person with common sense would ever deny. Okay, so now we come to... After these, these are just introductory remarks, Ramos says. A person must satisfy the following conditions before he can become a prophet. Number one, his brain must be of the most perfect condition. How do you get a brain in perfect condition? You don't destroy your brain. How do you, how do you destroy your brain? I guess watching TV all the time. You destroy your brain. You can't think anymore. A person's not used to thinking. A lot of people today are not used to thinking. You just mechanically just do things without even thinking about them. So by not destroying the brain, a person's brain can be destroyed completely. So drugs, uh, alcohol can destroy a person's brain. A person's brain is going to be perfect. That's number one. Number two, no part of his body must suffer ill health. You cannot be a prophet who is sick. Wow, huh? The body's going to be healthy as well. Number three, a person must have studied and acquired wisdom. So his fa- rational faculties pass from a state of potentiality to actuality. So a person's going to use their brain to be able to think straight. Number four, the intellect must be as developed and perfect as human intellect can be. Number five, the passions must be pure and equally balanced. Number six, all their desires must aim to obtain a knowledge of the hidden laws and causes that are enforced in the universe. That's so hard to do because a person is just sidetracked all the time, just focusing on God all the time. His thoughts must be engaged in lofty manners, attention directed to the knowledge of God, the consideration of works and that which we must believe in this respect. There must be an absence of low desires and appetites, or the seeking after pleasure and eating, drinking, or competition. I just read in the, the command an interesting story. I um, can't remember who it was, but it was Rav Kahana. Rav Kahana would shampoo his hair before going to, the, to, to his, his Rebbe. I think it was Rav. And Rav says, you'll never be a big hacham. says, why? Why? Because instead of spending time over here, you're, you're busy, your you're physical delights. And that's exactly what the Ramadan says. The Ramadan says a person busy thinking about the lower thoughts will not be able to be a prophet. Because they always think, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm this and that. They'll never have time to think purely on their... Uh, so sometimes the prophet is just going to s- focus on the prophecy, and that's it. For, for days, Moshe Rabbeinu is 40 days and 40 nights. Obviously, a prophet can't do that. Uh, Eliyahu Navi was also a long time. Was it 30 days and 30 nights also? There must be an absence of low desires and appetites of the seeking after pleasure and eating, drinking, and hope and cohabitation. In short, every pleasure connected with the sense of touch. And yet people are surprised that these scholars do not prophesy. Why? Because they're not, even though they're very smart, they're still very involved with this world. They're never disconnected from this world. They still want to eat, they still want to drink, they still want to do other things. It is further necessary to express every thought or desire for unreal power and dominion. Some of you want to be Kabbalists because they have power. Imagine, you could say words and control things. You're not going to be a prophet like that. 
So you have to be the most humble of men that doesn't want any power. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu. The more humble, the more, more prophecy. So a person who wants prophecy for the sake of dominion, that is for victory, increase of followers, acquisition of honor, service for the people, okay, will not get prophecy. So a person who satisfies these conditions, while his fully developed imagination is in action, influenced by the active intellect, so you need both. Romans say for prophecy, you need the active intellect and the imagination. You need the person, intellect and the imagination. Such a person would undoubtedly perceive nothing but things very extraordinary and divine and see nothing but God and his angels. Wow. His knowledge will only include that which is real knowledge and his thoughts will only be directed to such general principles as would tend to improve social relations between man and man. Amazing. This is amazing Rambam over here. So Rambam says we need both. You need both the intellect and the imagination for, for prophecy. So this is Rambam's definition of true prophet as one who employs his rational imaginative faculties as opposed to the psychic dreamer or intuitive who utilizes only his imagination. That's the difference between a psychic and a prophet. A, a psychic just uses the imagination. If they get something in the imagination, that's it. There's no rational thought. Whereas a prophet has rational thought as well as the imagination. Okay. Let's move on. To what are we aiming for? What does a person aim for when they meditate? It's a very powerful ideas. So we talked about structure, structured meditation, for example, Shema, Damida, even though we don't think of it as a meditation, it's a very powerful meditation, it's a structured meditation. If you go to these Kabbalistic yeshiva, they spend hours on the, on the Amida, hours on the Shema area, it's a meditation, tremendous meditation. Then you have unstructured Hibon and Nut meditation, contemplation, which is the way of the Balatanya, Chabad, and then you have Hidbodadut, which is um, visual and vocal and kinetic meditations. So what is the purpose of meditation? Number one, to develop one's spiritual caliber, to purify one's consciousness. Instead of blotting out one's thoughts, it focuses on holiness. That's very important. Focusing the mind on holy thoughts. Focusing the mind on holy thoughts increases spiritual sensitivity and holds one's perspective. So just thinking about Hashem, Yudke Vavke, just purifies one's brain. Thinking about Torah, purifies one's brain. It's a totally different, totally different world, a person living in a different world. Right? You go out on the street and they're living in a different world. You come inside here, you see you're living in a different world. It's a totally different dimension. It's a holy dimension as opposed to an unholy dimension. Right? If you work in a warehouse, I mean, I worked in a factory in England when I was a kid. You can't, you can't think holy thoughts. It's very hard to think holy thoughts when people around you are swearing and cursing and and all sorts of things are going on around you. It's very hard. You need an island of the mind, huh? Earphones. Earphones, yeah. They never had them in those days. So, Jewish meditation not just calm the mind, it purifies the mind. That's, that's a very important part of meditation, is purifying the mind by thinking holy thoughts. Jewish meditation trains the ego to resonate with the, with the neshama. Train the ego to resonate with the neshama. The neshama is altruistic. It's so hard to be altruistic. It's so hard to be altruistic because people are going to take advantage of you. If you're naive, they're going to take even more advantage of you. It's so hard to be altruistic in this world. It's very hard today. Um, I gave my computer once to someone. I didn't know what he was up to with my computer. I just said, you know, I want to be altruistic. I want to be generous. But you can't give your computer to someone. You have private information on the computer. You know what's going to happen. So it's very important. Sometimes you've got to know how to protect yourself as well. Yes, we want to be altruistic. It's very good to be altruistic. But that was Abraham Avinu. Abraham Avinu is altruistic. But again, there's some people he couldn't take. He even threw out someone, right? 
Throughout the guy wouldn't believe in God, right? This old man wouldn't believe in God. And Hashem rebuked him. Abraham Vino, I supported him for 80 years and you can't support him for one day. <laughs> but again, you have to know, is this guy dangerous, not dangerous, he's going to steal from me, rob from me, you know, he's going to interfere with my wife, whatever. A person can't be so naive, but the way to get the altruism into one's ego is through meditation. That's all. By strengthening our inner moral compass and redirecting our focus to Hashem, we turn to being soul-centered. And we reforge a connection with the Shekhinah. So that's number one, is what's the purpose of meditation? Number one is to develop our spiritual side. Right? Developing our spiritual consciousness and raising our mind to a high level. That's number one. Number two. Number two is the inner journey, which we talked about. We talked about the sword. We talked about the, remember the sword? The revolving sword, which stops us from entering Gan Eden. What is Gan Eden? From entering the accessing our own neshama, which is Gan Eden, the tree of life. Tree of life. Tree of life is the neshama. We have to realize that. Neshama is the tree of life, which is linked to the higher worlds. That's the tree of life. So Jewish meditation is a means to a higher end. The beginning of a journey. Once you access your inner mind, you become empowered to experience the spiritual vibrations within and without. As the meditation brings greater awareness, your insight becomes progressively richer as the light of your soul guides your focus. So that's a very important point. That accessing the inner mind. The Midrash describes the soul as interconnected chain linking heaven to earth. That's really Sulam Yaakov. Who's Yaakov in his ladder? How do you get up to the heaven and you have angels going up and down the heaven? And the answer is our soul goes all the way up to the highest levels of heaven, wherever the source of our soul comes from, which is usually under the Kisekawod. Under the Kisekawod, under the throne of glory. So it's really high up there. So the Kisekawod, throne of God, focusing on godly aspect or idea, we climb the metaphysical ladder, mirrored in the levels of the soul, and go within and beyond the Etzadat Tovara, which is the Dat, we said to the soul source of the infinite, the Eitz Chayim, the tree of life, to realize this natural dvekut in God. So that's a very powerful idea. So three aspects to Jewish meditation. Number one is focusing on holy thoughts. Purifying one's mind. Very, very, right? How do you purify your mind? And the answer is by focusing the mind on holy thoughts. So if you sit down in the basement drash and you're learning to it all day, the whole purpose, what's the purpose? One of the purposes is we lose sight of that. I'm learning to it, I'm wondering Why? I want to learn in order to keep, in order to do, and to teach. That's why I want to learn. But the added benefit, which is people miss sometimes, is the purity of the mind. That's really such a high level, to purify one's mind is high level, especially in today's day and age. But there's so much out there, a person's mind can be full of garbage. So Jewish meditation, number one is to purify the mind, to climb the spiritual worlds, to get closer to Hashem. So when you get closer to Hashem, you get greater revelation of His reality. And to follow the path down from God, you bring it down with you now. You're bringing down the Shefa, the, the energies that come down, right? So you're going up there. Focus your mind on the Hashem. You get spiritual energy, you come down bringing the spiritual energy with you. And then to realize there's nothing but God. So uh, that's a very high level. Obviously, that's part of the Shemun Asrei. How many blessings in the Shemun Asrei? 19. Why is it 19? Okay, but why is it 19? Why the number 19? Why not 20? Why not 21? Why not 25? So the answer is the 10th Sfirot. 
you climb up the ten and you come down again. That's the ladder. Spiritual ladder to heaven and back. You climb up the ten ladder, ten steps of the ladder. We all know about the twelve steps, but there's ten steps over here. Mm-hmm. Ten steps of the ladder, and then you have nine steps going down. The tenth step is the highest level. You go up to the highest level, you come down again. Nine up. Ten up, nine down. Ten up, nine down. Okay? So that's right, the Shemunasrei. People don't realize. Same thing applies to the whole of Shacharit. You're going up different levels, and you're coming down different levels, right? So from uh, from the, the Korbanot, uh, which Olam, Olam Asiya. Pesukin Zimra, Olam Ha Yetzira. The blessings before the Shema, Olam Ha Bria. Shemunasrei Atilut. Up right up there. And then you come down after that. Tachanun and Ashrei. Olam Habriya. Then you have the Psukede Zimra of the Psukim of the Yom, of the day, which is Olam Hayetira. And then you have the Korbanot, again Olam Hayetira. You go up the ladder. Everything's going up the ladder and then coming down the ladder. It's amazing. We, don't, we do it every day. We don't, just don't realize what we're doing. We're climbing a spiritual ladder and then we're trying to bring it down, bring down the energies we've got uh, with you. And that's why the, the Ketoret is such a powerful thing. Rabbi Lomas in England, he's, he calls it uh, Brinks. It's the security. Because there's all sorts, of, all sorts of bad energies are trying to remove that, that power from us, that Shefa which we've got. So this protects us from other, other, other sources taking over that power, that energy. So you go up, they bring out the energy, and you come down and bring down the energy to yourself. So when a person performs the mitzvah, hopefully it includes all these aspects. Because really, a person should meditate on the mitzvah as well. The trouble is, when a person does the mitzvah, you say the bracha, and you swallow the bracha, and you swallow the mitzvah. A person should focus on the bracha when you're doing mitzvah, because that is really the secret, the source of the kavanah, of the intentions behind it. So when a person does a mitzvah, you're mentioning Hashem, consciousness of God. Number two is, you're tuning yourself to God's closeness. Number three is, I'm doing this out of love for God. Why am I doing the mitzvah? Why would I do a mitzvah if I don't love God or want to serve God? So, so that's the contemplation behind it. The trouble is, the person's got to be mindful. That's the trouble. Most people, when they do things, are not mindful. Right? We do it out of rope. We do it out of habit. We're not mindful when we do a mitzvah. It's hard. So usually, mitzvah, what you do frequently, they're the most least mindful. Now, a mitzvah person does from time to time, say a person puts a mezuzah on the door. How many, how many times a year do you put a mitzvah in your door? It's very infrequent. So the more infrequent the mitzvah is, maybe the more concentration a person will have. Sitting in a sukkah, it's a very mindful experience. Because how often do you sit in your sukkah? <laughs> Shaking a lulav. How often do you shake your lulav? So these mitzvah which come from time to time, and there's a shechiyano as well, it, it's much easier to focus. But a mitzvah comes every day, you're doing it every day like a, ro- like a robot. It's very hard to focus. That's why it's so hard to focus when you pray. You're just doing it so often and often. It just becomes like a rote. Through constant mindful performance, with contemplation and focus, you will hear God's voice in doing a mitzvah even. The mitzvah itself will talk to you. Okay. And then we talked about bringing down Shefa, which is people don't really talk about at all. Now, by certain things we do, we trigger energies in the worlds above, and these energies come into us, they flow into us. Now everyone wants to get the jack- hit the jackpot, right? Everyone wants to get the jackpot of energy. And they think in terms of money. 
where does money come from? And the answer is also, that's also kind of shefa. That's also kind of spiritual energy which comes down to this world, becomes physical. Because we are living in a physical world. So what happens is a spiritual energy comes to the worlds above which are more spiritual. When they get lower and lower and lower, they become more physical as well, more tangible. So spiritual energies become tangible, they become shefa. Different kinds of shefa. There's energy of, of uh, wealth, there's energy of health, there's different kinds of energies. A person brings down. How do you bring the energies down? You trigger it. How do you trigger energies? The answer is very simple. Today I was interesting. I was giving a learning a Mishnah about about I think with a kid. The Mishnah about uh, water, the water drawing ceremony and pouring the water on the altar. Why would we pour water on the altar? Uh, is God is God thirsty? No. And what are you doing it for? For us. For us, what? How? Trigger what? That's what. Triggering. You're triggering. How you trigger your brain? You're giving God some water that triggers spiritual energy that brings back water. You give God the korban, and God says, "Wow, you gave me meat. I'm going to give you more meat." It's a trigger for energies. It's a trigger. Everything we do is a trigger for anything. We have to understand that. You do good things, it triggers good things. You do bad things, it triggers bad things. And it's part of nature. It's built into nature. Person is built. All these things are built into nature. So, person prays. That's hopefully that's a trigger. You pray for something, you, it's a trigger for asking something. It's amazing. You can ask something 50 million times, you won't get it. 51, 50 million and one, you'll get it. It's an amazing concept. That uh, just like you have the camel, the straw that broke the camel's back, so too you have the final, the prayers build up, build up, build up, build up, and eventually they penetrate. How do we see this? Where do we see this? Vaitchanan Lashem Gaitahi. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Vaitchanan Lashem. I prayed 515 times. What does Hashem say? Stop! You reach the crux. You reach the critical point. The critical mass. 516, you get in. Don't say it. Don't pray anymore. I don't want you to pray anymore. Why can't you pray anymore? Because if you pray anymore, you're going to break my will. Hashem swore you're not going to go in. You're going to break my will. I can't let you go in. I can't let you go in. Stop praying. Can you imagine one more prayer? words, we know there's a limit. The prayers will just break through. They're like battering rams. The Midrash says Moshe Rabbeinu's prayers were like battering rams into heaven. They just would go in and smashing the whole thing. This, the whole structure of heaven was being shattered by Moshe Rabbeinu's prayers. Hard to imagine. I wish we could just see the power of our tefillah. How high they would go and then we'd just be more motivated. The trouble is we can't see it. We have, so that's why a person needs a good imagination. You can't be a prophet without a good imagination. Why are you going to be able to see things which no one else can see? Imagine a person's praying, they say, wow, I see the prayers going up. It's like the rabbi comes to the shul and he says, wow, he says, this, this building is full of prayers. You're building it, you're sitting on it, it's full of prayers. And, the, and people are saying, wow, that's great, rabbi. He says, no, it's terrible. So why is it bad? They didn't go up. <laughs> why didn't they go up, rabbi? Because everyone's talking to each other. Have to go up. Prayers are going to go up. It's not. It's not good. You come into a shul full of prayers. The prayers are going to go all the way up. If they're, if they're empty of prayers, it's a good sign. That means it went up. It's full of prayers. So a person could have the imagination, be able to see what's going on. So these are called Kabbalistic terms. They're called yichudim, making yichudim by joining names of God. When you join names of God, you're creating a trigger for more energy. So, so classic name of God. Okay, let's let's do one yichud. What is a yichud? The word amen, right? Amen is how much? 91. Very simple. 91. Amen is 91. Yud Kei Vav Kei is 26. Aleph Dalet Yud is 65. When you combine 65 and 26, you get 91. 
When a person says amen, they should think. Yud kevav Combination. You just made a yichud. That's called yichud. That's what Shem Yichud, Shem Yichud. We want to unify these different energies. And by unifying these different energies, we get tremendous Shefa. That's a Yichud. That's what, that's, what, that's what it's all about. It's all about Yichudim. Everything's all about Yichudim. Now, we do these things, even a person doesn't know what they're doing. They're doing it anyway. These things are happening whether you like it or not. These have happened in the words above. But if you know what you're doing, you can make, make it even more. That's what the Kabbalists are doing all day, Yichudim. Say a bracha on food. They're making yichud on the fruit, on the, on the, on the bracha. Because you have your kevavke in the bracha. And if you look at the little hay in some sederim, you'll find aladana in yud. You ever notice that? And then some sederim spell out even more. Even more. Yud alaf hay dalad wav no hay dalad yud. No yud. So it's, it's, it's there, right there in the sederim. So that's the yichud over there. You're combining God's name, alaf dalad nun yud, with yud kevavke. That's the yichud over there. That's one yichud. There's different kinds of yichud. So that's a very powerful, that triggers energy. So combining different names of God triggers energy. Sometimes you combine your name with God's name. We talked about that, right? Putting your name inside the Yud Kevavke. So, the Ramam says, and this is also by the, by the Baal Shem Tov, a person's is where their thoughts are. If you are thinking of a beach and you're lying on the beach in the sun, you're there, that's where you are. It's great. Sometimes you can be on the beach, you won't even be there. Why? Because you're thinking about something else. <laughs> There's no point being somewhere if you're not really thinking about being where you are, because you're somewhere else. Sometimes you want to be somewhere else. How, how does a person survive if they're in prison and they're in jail, whatever, in solitary confinement? And the answer is they've got to have a good imagination. Maybe they're thinking about something else. What does a person do when they're depressed? They think about the good times. Look at the pictures. They trigger good memories, right? Think about good times. Think about the wedding, their child got married, or their, their wedding, or someone else's wedding. Think about the good times of their life. So a person can be in a different place. Even though they're suffering, they can be in a different place. Right? Ravad Yosef, he did surgery without any anesthesia. Why? Because his mind was in the book. His mind was a different place. And it long gone. The surgery was long over. He's, he's, did you finish yet? <laughs> So a person can be in a different place, just where the mind is. That's what the Rambam says. And also the Baal Shem Tov. A person is where their thoughts are. Think of Hashem and you are with Hashem. That's so powerful. Every time you think of Hashem. Now a person should really time themselves. I've got to try and do this. I don't know time yourself. you got to stop watching. you got to stop watching every time. Think of Hashem. Hashem, 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 Hashem. Just time. How long can a person think of Hashem all the time? So that's why during the day, there's so many reminders of Hashem. Every time you say a bracha on something, it's amazing. Because even the physical is used as a trigger to think of Hashem. I'm hungry. Low, low desire. It's a low desire. But it's going to trigger a higher thought. That's powerful. That's a very brilliant, what a brilliant idea. Because you can't escape these things. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I need to go to the bathroom. And even then, you guys come out and say, think of Hashem straight away. Boy, that's amazing. What a powerful, that 100 times a day, a person's going to say a bracha. Hundred times a day to think of Hashem. So at least hundred times a day, a person thinks of Hashem. Then you got to pray as well. So that 19, 19 blessings, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, and then you got the blessings before the Shemun Ezra, Baruch Shemar. You got the Ishtabach. You got the blessings before the Shemun. After the Shemun, you got another. How many blessings? At least. And you got the Brikat Shachar. So at least hundred ble- uh, making blessings all the time. Think of Hashem. When you think of Hashem, you're there. Only trouble is, we say the words, we don't think of Hashem. So important, we say the word Baruch Hashem. Triggers, lights flash in the head. Think of Hashem, the Creator. 
So to the extent your mind is involved with a mitzvah or Torah, you're in Gan Eden with a Shekhinah. Whoa. What do you say? I'm in Gan Eden? Yeah. You're in Gan Eden. You're thinking about Hashem. Where's Hashem? Hashem is the Shekhinah. Where's Hashem? His presence is the highest worlds. He's all over, but he's in the highest worlds. So when you're with Hashem, you're in the highest worlds. You're living in this world in a higher world. Psh, what, a, what a powerful idea this is. I'm living in a physical world, but my mind is in a spiritual place. No, you're right. But how high do you want to get? We can't get there. We can't get there. We can never get there. Don't worry, we'll never get there. We can only go as high as the source of our souls. You can't go higher than the source of your soul. That's it. We're limited to that. So usually it's higher the source of our souls under Kisya Kavod or Mabriya, whatever it is. That's it. Depends on the person's soul. There's Gan Eden, there's Eden. Eden is higher than Gan Eden. Why? Because the Torah says this is a, a river came from Eden to water the gun. So the big, really big Sadiqim in, in Eden. The lower level Sadiqim in Gan Eden, uh, you know, well, 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 Gan is not so bad. Get to Gan Eden is not so bad. But a person thinking of Hashem in this world, that's why it's so powerful. One second of this world, thinking of Hashem in this world, is more powerful than the whole next world. Can you imagine? The pleasure of thinking about Hashem. Says Torah, what does it say? Engaged in Teshuvah and Ma'asim Tavim. In this world, it's more than the whole, all the pleasures of the next world. Why? Was, and the answer, if you're living with Hashem in this world, it's much more powerful than living with Hashem in the next world. Don't ask me how. How is it more powerful? Because you're using your own free will to get there. It's not a gift. It's not retirement. It's actually you're working for it. So understanding that when you are where you think will amplify your thoughts and focus. And the greater the focus, the more powerful its ramifications. Greater concentration and purity intensifies the vekut. That's how a person clings to God. How do you cling to God? In your mind, you cling to God. I mean, David Melch was amazing. Every trouble he had, every opportunity to cling to God, he clung to God. Everything that happened in his life, we all have troubles. So now, use your troubles to get away from God and deny God and say, why do you do this to me, God? I hate you. You're going further away. Or you can use your troubles to get closer. Hashem, I need you more. I need you more in my life. I need you more in my life. And that's what we need. We need God more than our lives. That's what we can do. So, and that's, that's really what all the troubles are for, really. The troubles are, the fair says, why was Sarah, why could Sarah not have no children? Pray more. Why could uh, Rivka have no children? Pray more. Why did Rachel have no children? Pray more. Hashem wants to hear the prayers of the Sadiqim. It's very tough. It's a very tough lesson. But it was, Hashem wants to hear from us. He wants us to be linked. How do you cling to Hashem? A person has everything like the snake. He had everything. I'm not clinging to Hashem. I don't need Hashem. It's in Gemara. We just did the Gemara yesterday in Daf Kuftet. Kuftet, Kuftet of Sanhedrin. talks about the generation of the flood. The generations of flood had everything. Hashem gave them every benefit that a human being could require just in order they could serve Him better. And what did they do? They took everything. There's one thing they needed. It was water. They said, we don't need water. We have the river Euphrates. We have the Tigris and Euphrates. Beautiful rivers. We don't need Hashem. We don't need rain even. So Hashem says, you don't need rain? You're going to be killed through rain. If you don't need it, you're going to show. I'm going to show you a teacher a lesson. You do need. You need... <laughs> I'm in control of the rain. Rain's going to kill you. You don't need me. So why? He gave them everything. And they kicked him. Yeshua got fat and they kicked God. So that's the reason why sometimes a person gets troubles. And the troubles a person can use as a ladder. Mm. 
person's got to use it for ladder, otherwise it's just wasted. It's wasted on rebellion. Rebellion. It's terrible. So it's a terrible thing. Where do we see this? Menashe. The worst king of Israel we ever had. Worst king of Judah, right? He was also the longest reigning king. 55 years he was a king. 33 years he was a good king. And how many years left? 22 years he was a bad king. Man, 22 years, what happens to him? How, what brings him back? He gets captured by the king of Babel, taken to Babel and put in torture chamber. They put him in a cauldron and they put him in the, over the fire. He's bubbling in the fire. What is he doing in the, in the fire, the, in the cauldron? He's worshipping every single God he knew about. And nothing happened. He said, God, he said, please, I, I'm doing Shiva. I can't anymore. Hashem, you're the only one, Hashem. You're the only one, Hashem. You're the only one, Hashem. The king here, the king puts out the fire and takes him out, sends him back to Israel. Miracle. And now he's about to Shiva. But he did so much damage to the Jews. There's a question the command was, is Shiva accepted or not? Now he rectified himself, he rectified what he did. He put idols in the temple, he made them all worship idols, he made them immoral, whatever the things he did, he couldn't change them. It was too late. But it just shows that the troubles so happens. All the rabbis go to visit Rabbi Lazar. Rabbi Lazar is dying. Rabbi Lazar is dying. He's in pain. All the rabbis are crying. Rabbi Kiva is laughing. All the rabbis are praising Rabbi Eliezer. You're like the sun, you're like the moon, you're like the stars, you're like this, you're like that. Akiva says, precious are suffering. He said, what? Come closer, Eli. Akiva, what do you say? Come back, come closer. Akiva says, precious is suffering. Hmm. Very powerful. What the other people said didn't make an impression on him. But he said, precious is suffering. Why? Because suffering brings you closer to God. Unfortunate. It's tragic. But that's the way it is. That's the way it is. But a person's going to use it as a tool to get closer. So it's, it's like a mechanism, of a magnet to get closer. Okay, I'm going to stop here. We'll continue next week. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.